wouldn't it be great to take a job and not have to worry about money? Wouldn't it be fabulous if you could try out a new role for a week, a month, or a couple of months without worrying about having to pay your basic bills? Couldn't it be cool to follow your passion or follow your dreams or even just follow your skill set and know that you have choice, you have autonomy, and your basic needs are always going to be met? Wouldn't that just change everything? Wouldn't that fix work? Could fix work. Welcome to the Let's Fix Work podcast. I'm your host, Lori Rudiman. We're going to talk about all of that today with my guest, Scott Santons. Scott is the leading voice, the foremost thinker on basic income, at least in my opinion. He's great, and he's going to explain to us what basic income is, how it's different than welfare, and how it enables the workforce to be creative, innovative, to do cool things, to experiment, to think differently, and ultimately to say no to bad work. So if you want to fix work, you want to fix your life, you want to fix your job, consider opening your mind and learning about basic income. Scott and I had a fabulous conversation, and I really hope you enjoy it. Here we go. Work is broken. So is the way you think about it. Host Lori Rudiman is breaking things down so you can put them back together and make work something you can enjoy. Let's fix work together. With the Let's Fix Work podcast, here's Lori. Hi, everybody. I'm Lori Rudiman, and welcome to Let's Fix Work. I'm here today with an awesome guest. He's my friend and a recent colleague. His name is Scott Santons. And Scott, welcome to the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Lori. Yeah, I'm excited about this topic, basic income. I'm kind of obsessed about it now that I know about it. So (laughs) can you tell me what is basic income? Can you give me a definition? Sure. Uh, Basic income is a regular cash stipend provided to individuals unconditionally and universally. So essentially what we're doing is creating an income floor underneath everyone. And that income floor would replace a great deal of welfare programs and tax credits, uh, but it would be done in a way that um, that under that supports all work and is not pulled away with work versus like traditional programs. Can you give me an example of how basic income is different than welfare? Because when I hear redistribution of wealth and mm-hmm. money, I automatically go to welfare. Yeah, so uh, the, the big difference between uh, basic income and welfare is that, uh, and this is something a lot of people don't understand the way that welfare works, and it's that welfare is targeted. And that may sound on its face to be what you want, to say, well, we only want people to get assistance when they need assistance. And that sounds like it sounds right. But the way that, that the, the effect of that is that uh, – Essentially, what you're doing is you're saying that you only qualify for something if you're not working, in which case you are punished for working. So let's say if you are receiving uh, you know, $20,000 in welfare benefits and you are offered a job for, let's say, $15,000 per year. 
Now it's like we assume that that you're going to be better off because, like, well, you're 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 unemployed, you're on welfare benefits, and obviously, if you get this job, uh, and you should take it, you'll be better off. But that's not the way that it works. What would happen, let's say, is that um, you know you would lose your twenty thousand dollars in benefits, and you might lose all of it, or you might lose most of it. Uh, but let's say you would accept your fifteen thousand dollar a year job, and you would, let's say, be at uh, $20,000 to $25,000 now total, in which case you aren't that much better off at all than you were uh, when you were receiving welfare. So welfare punishes people for working, and that's what people don't necessarily understand about the way that it works. Another thing, too, is that welfare... Um, you know, is controlling. It says that, you know, we're going to make decisions for you. We know what's better for you. Um, You know, you're hungry, you need food, and you need this kind of food, not that kind of food. Uh, We want to make sure that you don't spend it on other things. And that sense of controllingness uh, really prevents people from making a lot of positive choices. It's like we're so we're so focused and worried about negative choices that we're essentially preventing people from making positive choices. And, uh, you know, another part about this too, is that something called, um, uh, it's a, it's a false, uh, false negative or a type two error, which is, it's a result of any kind of means testing. So what this means is that we exclude a lot of people that we intend to include in our assistance programs. Uh, a good example of this would be disability. So it's, we assume that everyone with a disability is receiving disability assistance. And if you're not disabled, then you're not getting it. And we're worried about people who aren't disabled getting disability assistance. But what happens is that, say, in the U.S., um, one out of every five people in the U.S. has a disability of some kind. And of those people who have a disability, one in five of them are receiving a form of disability assistance. So four out of five people with a disability are receiving nothing and are expected to compete on even keel with those who are fully abled. And therefore, because of that, you see a lot more uh, rates of poverty uh, with those who have some form of disability because they are, you know, competing against fully abled people in the labor market. And this is a result of this means testing because we're saying that, you know, you have to meet these conditions in order to receive assistance. And when you do that, you leave out a lot of people that you necessarily don't intend to leave out. All right. So I got it. So basic income is different than welfare in that basic income enables people to work while still receiving income, whereas welfare is often punitive and it's often all or nothing. So I've got that. Can you give me an example of where basic income exists in the world? Because I've been all around the world to Cuba, to Eastern Europe, to governments and countries that take from wealthy people or take from all people and redistribute income. And it's not necessarily fair and it isn't necessarily helping everyone. So where is basic income in the world and where is it working? Yeah, so the the close to the closest example of universal basic income anywhere in the world has existed in Alaska since 1982. And the reason that that's the closest is because everyone there, rich or poor, and even child or adult, it doesn't even matter the age, everyone there who is a resident of Alaska, which qualifies as being uh, the previous year there, uh, receives this annual dividend. 
And the dividend is around, on average, it's been around $1,000 since 1982, which is when the first dividend came out. And this has been as large, um, you know, as, as over $3,000 for the year. It was actually the highest under Sarah Palin when she provided a bonus. So of all people- Wait, wait. Yeah. I don't want to give Sarah Palin credit <laughs> here. This is not the kind of podcast, but that's interesting. So the highest yeah. under Sarah Palin. Yeah, the highest was under Sarah Palin. And that was, that's per person. So if you're receiving a $2,000 dividend universally, and let's say you have a household of five people, then that's $10,000 for the year. And that's a a nice floor. And you only receive it once instead of on a monthly basis, which is usually when we're talking about a basic income and a regular income, it seems to be like monthly or every two weeks or every week or something. So it's not necessarily a basic income, it's once a year. But that's really kind of the the biggest difference is that is if we're just a little bit larger and a little bit more frequent, it would be a full-on basic income. And it has worked very well there. In fact, they did a recent study, uh, an analysis was done where they uh, created what was called a synthetic Alaska, which was creating, uh, using other states and combining them together to create a state that did not have the dividend. And just, you know, to see what is the difference as that would be the control group and then looking at Alaska and see what the comparison is. And they found that the, that the dividend actually increased part-time employment by 17%. And so it, it enabled people to do more work. And uh, what they, another, they looked at the full-time employment and it was essentially um, a, a net uh, neutral effect. So there was a, there was a slight uh, decrease in full-time employment, but this was combined with a with the increase in demand from people spending more money because they had more money to spend and which created jobs and then those jobs attracted people because you know people wanted to do that and so the net effect was essentially zero but there was an increase in part-time employment so overall you see that the effect in alaska is great in fact alaska um most recently is the is the the most equal state in the u.s uh, out of all states, and it's it's frequently that, and it's also frequently among the lowest in poverty, and also it's the it's usually among the highest in uh, well-being. It's always like between Alaska and Hawaii as far as the highest rates of well-being in the U.S., and I think it's greatly to do with that. Or it could be that it's the furthest away from other Americans. <laughs> <laughs> there might be something there. So what you're really talking about is a national dividend, if we apply this to America. Yeah. A, a pool of money that can be redistributed. But again, does that money come from Mark Zuckerberg? Does it come from Bill Gates? Where does that money come from? Yeah, there are a lot of ways of funding a basic income. Um, But I would say, first of all, it's important to understand that this would be replacement for not only a lot of welfare programs, which we're already spending money on, and also replacement for a lot of tax credits and deductions and subsidies, all these loopholes that we're also already spending money on. Uh, You can eliminate a lot of that. So we can simplify the tax code. You can simplify the welfare system. And again, this is not about replacing everything. It's just that if you do this, there's a lot of stuff that you no longer need anymore. And when you understand that, it, the price tag isn't really that much. Also, it's this is a this is a net transfer too. So there's like a there's a common misconception that the price of a basic income is that you take the amount of basic income and you multiply it by the number of people in the population, and that's not correct because 
everyone is paying into the basic income and everyone is receiving it too. So if your taxes go up, um, you know, $5,000 and in return you receive $12,000, then effectively you're getting $7,000 and you're paying essentially $5,000 of your $12,000. So if you look at everyone along the spectrum, you're going to have people who's, who's in, who's, taxes increase just slightly and then receive like essentially the full basic income. And then you're going to have people towards the top end, those like your, your billionaires who are good, their taxes are going to go up, say, you know, $50,000 or a hundred thousand dollars or, or a quarter million dollars or whatever, you know, it depends on, on who they are and how much they're earning and, and um, how we tax it. But they will not be receiving, you know, anywhere near as much as their taxes go up. They're a net payer. And so if you look at the net payer and the net receiver, like in the U.S., um, the cost would be you know, the napkin math estimate is like, say, oh, it's going to cost too much. It's like $3 trillion. Well, no, if you look at the net transfer, it's more like $900 billion, which is the net transfer from the top to the middle and the bottom. And then you subtract uh, the programs that you no longer need and the, and the simplify the tax code in that way. And then you're looking at a cost of around – 300 to 600 billion dollars depending on the choices in the, your funding decisions. So it's a much smaller amount than people think. And then of course there's so many ways of funding it where personally I wouldn't recommend doing it like with an income tax. You know, let's let's actually, you know, there's so many other ways to do this. Let's we could look at value added taxes. We could look at land value taxes, carbon taxes. Um, we could even look at extending the Alaska model. So instead of, you know, they're not funding the Alaska dividend with a tax. What they're doing is they're saying, hey, oil companies, you want to drill here in Alaska? Well, okay, you can do that. But in order to do that, uh, we're going to need to, you know, come to an agreement and say that you need to pay us, you know, an access rent or royalty to actually drill in here. So it's not a tax. It's just a voluntary contract. Yeah, I hear that. You know, so many people who are listening will think, well, we're penalizing wealthy people for success. We're penalizing successful people for their success. And we are potentially impacting innovation in this country by saying to people who are innovators, in order to innovate in America, there's going to be a cost in excess of what there already is. And the current way that we deal with innovation Mm -hmm. is we give away money to these innovators, right? We give tax cuts. And so how do you... um, how do you square the circle, so to speak, around the issue that basic income could potentially stifle innovation and investment in America? Oh, well, first of all, I think we're actually stifling a lot of innovation right now from the way that we, um, from the way that we tax things and also the way that we, that we regulate things. And essentially, we allow companies to capture markets and uh, you're looking at rentierism when you're actually preventing market entry from competitors. Like there's so much of this uh, capture of, of government in order to protect people, in order to protect, uh, to protect companies and prevent people from, from getting in on this. Like it's just that's, that's anti-innovation to, you know, allow, let's say, a pharmaceutical company a patent on something that, you know, it was invented 40 years ago and everyone could create, but they've like purchased this and now they're preventing other people from getting to the market to do this. Like that's not pro innovation. Yeah. Yeah. I don't disagree with you. Well, (laughs) what about basic income for people? Because the argument from many members in my audience would be if you give somebody five bucks, why are they going to go to work? 
Yeah. So for uh, UBI, I think is just massively important for a, as a pro innovation policy. And this is, you know, there for multiple reasons. Um, for one, just look at risk aversion as something that prevents people from creating a new business or even you know trying out a new idea. They're thinking, oh, well, you know, what if I fail? Like, so I'm in my job right now. I've got this great idea for this new business, but I don't know. If I fail, then I could be homeless and I could drag my family into poverty. I don't know if I want to, if I want to do that. And even if you even if you have that uh, ability or, or, you know, that uh, you're not averse to that risk, then you say, well, maybe you might not have the capital to do that. Uh, you'd, have to, you'd have to get enough access to capital. Let's say you need a quarter million dollars in order to start this business. And let's say a larger portion of that is that you need to pay a, a certain amount of, of, of employees uh, especially during a non-profitable phase in order to get to the point of profitability. So you need that big chunk of capital. Well, the really interesting thing about basic income is that everybody actually has an income already so that they could actually work for you if they are passionate about your idea. So then all of a sudden you're looking at this ability that it, re- it reduces the people's risk aversion. So they're saying, oh, well, I can do this because if I fail – I'm not going to be homeless and starving. My family is not going to be in the poor house and in the streets. Like, we'll actually, we'll be okay. Yeah, basic income, wait, basic income is just a floor. It's not the same also on what you can earn. Exactly. It's a a firm floor and you can earn as, as much as you want to, as much as you can, as much as the market allows, as much as, you know, our regulations allow or whatever. But, um, you know, the, the important part is that that people will just be free to actually pursue things. And that's that's really the important element of basic income is that there's there's two there's two sides of this. Is that on the one hand, it's really important to understand that basic income is the power to say no. So that's the power to say no to to employers who are offering poverty wages. It's uh, or employers who are have horrible uh, working conditions or benefits or hours. Um, it's your people are agreeing to work at, not at an even bargaining level. They're, they're the employer has so much more power over them. So if with a basic income, then you have more power. You can say, well. I think, you know, what's your, your business that you have, I would work for you for $15 an hour or $20 an hour, but I'm not going to accept $7 an hour. Or, you know, I could, I could do this work for 15 hours to 20 hours a week, but I'm not going to do 40 to 60 hours a week. You know, it, it allows people, it allows the labor market to actually be a free market for labor. And it, you have to have this, this, negotiation between employer and employee. And on the, on the flip side of that is it allows people to say yes. So you can better choose the work that, that is more suitable for you, which can mean on the one end that you are able to work for someone who would only be able to pay you, say, $0 or like hardly anything. Or they would say, well, you know, if you work for us and like you know, the startup catches on, then, you know, we can pay for you in stock options. So like, you'd be better off doing that if you could, it's just passing that point. So you can say yes to things that you wouldn't be able to do otherwise. 
That's perfect. And you know what? When we come back from our break, we're going to talk about why basic income is so important to you, more about the power to say no, and also the future of work in the gig economy. So give us a second, Scott. We'll be right back, everybody, with Let's Fix Work. Hey, are you ready to podcast like a pro? Then you need a secret weapon, someone who can make it easy, where all you have to do is show up and be the host. At One Stone Creative, that's what we do. Everything. Yeah, everything. Imagine, every time you sit down to record, you know what your topic is. You want a script? We can do that too. Then you record it, drop it in a folder, and that's it. Our team will take it from there. Production, show notes, uploads, blog posts, social media assets, swipe copy, like I said, everything. Book a call with a podcast strategist today. Just go to onestonecreative.net slash podcast. That's onestonecreative.net slash podcast. And we'll take it from there. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Lori Rudiman, and I'm with Scott Santons, and we're talking about basic income. So, Scott, you're pretty passionate about basic income and the power to say no and what basic income can do for innovation in our economy. Why is basic income important to you, and how is it made real in your own life today? Yeah, so I've actually uh, crowdfunded my own basic income and have been living with a basic income of $1,000 per month, every month since January of uh, 2016. So I already feel what it's like to have this sense of security. And it's really, I think, the most important element that surprised me the most is that it's this emotional feeling of security. And I didn't realize how little security I had until I had it. And I think that's true for a a lot of people. A lot of people out there, maybe you think you have job security and like, oh, well, I'm okay because I have a a nice paying job. But the thing is that at any point you could be fired. At any point, uh, your job could be outsourced. It could be automated. And that's actually a big part of uh, the problem with the existing with the existing forms of work right now is that people are becoming more and more insecure, that you're more worried about automation and that this, so many of the new forms of work are forms of alternative work where it's, you know, part-time instead of uh, full-time or it's temporary or contractual or a gig instead of, you know, career long. It's you're hoping to get a job for, for six months or a year or two years. And like the 30 year career is just doesn't exist anymore. So, yeah, by the way, I'm hoping to never have a job again. I think I'm fully <laughs> unemployable at this point. What were you doing before you became passionate about basic income that drove you to take up this topic and, you know, bang the drum? Well, so I've, I think I pretty much always have been living like this future of work where I've always been self-employed for, since I was like 20 years old, I've been self-employed and, you know, it's in, in website design, social media, and, um, you know, a little bit of writing here and there. All kinds of sketchy jobs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I've, I've never, ex- I've never really experienced, except for at the very beginning, working at a couple office jobs, this, uh, you know, having benefits is one thing I've just never had. And it wasn't until like Obamacare came up that I would actually had health insurance again, because that was something I didn't have for like, you know, over a decade, I think. And so th- a lot of these jobs that we're creating right now, it, they don't have these safety nets. You know, you're not creating, you're not building up a pension that's like way gone and yeah, you're no. not really have healthcare and you don't have really disability insurance just in case the worst happens. Like none of this stuff exists anymore. And in fact, people are, are having to, you know, pay for their own uh, capital. Like let's say, 
like an Uber driver, you know, like you have to have your own car in order to start earning this. And then it's up to you. And then if something happens to your car, well, that's on you. Yeah. Did you read that study that Uber drivers more often than not lose money than make money as drivers these days, right? So I can see how a basic income can free people up to, you know, drive two hours a week or drive 17 hours a week or be poets or do whatever without having to uh, own a bank and have a famous last name. And that's really the thing. So the, the, the main thing I've learned is the sense of security that I have, which, which makes just a huge difference. It's reduced stress. It's just, just not worrying like you used to worry. Um, but then on the other hand, it's just so nice that I can focus on the work that's most important to me. Yeah. And that might even not even pay anything. So I think it's really important to be able to pursue unpaid work. That's because um, you know, if you're looking at uh, extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation, you know, this is extrinsic motivation is when you're motivated to do something because of an external stimulus, like usually money. And intrinsic motivation is internal. It's like you want to do something because it's it's meaningful to you, because you feel it's important, uh, because you want to get better at it. It's like these internal drives that people have. And that's what I think is leads to the best work. It's the, the best work is not from wanting to to earn a paycheck just to get by you know the the best work is it's the work that people are really passionate about and it's it's so it's so freeing to be able to to pursue the work that i feel is important and actually do it without needing money in return like i would much rather like when i write something it's important to me that say millions of people read it because that's what I'm writing it for is I'm wanting to share what's in my head with other people. That's just the sharing of, of, of knowledge and, and, and thinking that that's what's important to me. What's not important to me, or it's that's not as appealing is if I were to say sell an article for a thousand dollars and then that's only in like some small circulation paper and maybe it's read by uh, a few say 50,000, 100,000 people or something. And it's like, well, great. Yeah, I earned $1,000, but only 50,000 people read it. Like, I would much prefer millions of people read it and not pay anything because then you lower that, that barrier. You know, I think people are scared of basic income because it seems like there aren't a lot of rules for the workday. And so I'll give you an example. You know, people out there who are entrepreneurs and innovators and start companies will eventually scale if they're successful and start a business. And almost all of them will start off with these lofty ideas of work and then create office environments that are just fucking tedious where people have to clock in and clock out and there are all these rules around work. And I would imagine there are people out there listening to you and thinking, well, how does he spend his day? Is he just drinking and writing and on the internet all day long? So do you think there's some inherent fear about the unknown with basic income that makes people say, whoa, this doesn't sound cool or it's scary or people will abuse it? Yeah, what, what I think it comes down to is it's a matter of trust. And right now, it's like our entire society is built on distrust. It's that you're always thinking the worst of people, that you have to keep these resources from them. And that's really what we're doing is we're saying that, that, that what was once free to access by everybody, in which case you were actually free to live on your own, you know, in a hunter-gatherer society, you would, you would gather up some food or whatever, and like, everyone essentially owned the commons. We locked that all up behind doors. We put padlocks on everything. And then we, the, the keys to these padlocks are money. And what we're doing is we're saying that you have to work 
for people who own the padlocks in order to get the keys to justify your existence. And that's just, it's a really strange way of looking at things where, and we've, we're all okay with it, it seems. And it's because we're very distrusting. It's like, we've just built this whole society that we just don't trust each other. And if we, if we turn that around and if we start off with trusting people, then it will improve so many other things because then you're building a society on trust and you're saying that I trust you and maybe I'm wrong to trust you, but it's up to you to prove me wrong, but I'm going to trust you in advance. And that allows so many more good decisions to be made that we're actually preventing by going it the, you know, the other way around. So, so I have, is, Oh, so I have a question. So what happens sure. then if, you know, for example, one of my dumb cousins has universal basic income, right? And he's out there and he ends up blowing his money on drugs and alcohol on a monthly basis. And he's constantly pulling from society and not contributing. What do we do with someone like that in the construct of UBI? Okay. So yeah. So and I am talking about one of my dumb cousins. That's <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so a few things. Uh, so on the, on the one hand, uh, it, the, someone who is, let's say, just spending the money and yeah. not, not contributing is actually still contributing because they're spending. They're, they're yeah, creating right. this demand. And so someone needs that money in order to do the work. You know, if you have a business, you want customers. And so someone is that customer that you don't know. Let's say, just imagine a store right now or having a business right now. It's not like you're means testing your customers and saying that, did you work for this money? What did you do? Like, I want to know exactly what you did in order to get this money. No, it's important that they just spend. Yeah, <laughs> true. Money. Yeah, so, I've been to the mall. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> so that's one important element. And the other thing is like, just if you look at the scientific data and the evidence behind this and you see that, that what people spend their money on and what people do is that they spend their money wisely. They don't spend their money in, uh, on drinking. In fact, drinking goes down slightly if you look at meta-analyses of this. Wait, drinking goes down slightly where? In Alaska? This is a um, um, meta-analysis oh, of meta like yeah, dozens okay. of studies. And okay. so looking at, at cash transfer programs all over the world, it's right. a very common uh, finding. And by the way, I'm not judging drinking. Yeah, because my God, who doesn't drink? Among the two of us, I know I drink more than you do. So that's, <laughs> that's yeah. not my concern, well, right? But yeah, I, so we're talking about temptation goods, right? Yeah, drugs, absolutely. gambling, all these yeah. other things. Yeah. And so the science says that people just don't do that. In fact, a lot of this is from it's a any kind of addictive behavior is kind of a self medication for uh you know a lot of its chronic stress it's uh it's a it's a manifestation of massive inequality and poverty and so if you decrease those things then you decrease the wanting to use these things that we don't want people to use so again it's like we're so worried about preventing people from doing these things that we actually increase their doing them by withholding what they need to not do them so that's like really interesting uh, on that. And another thing about this too, those, that's I, I think it's just, I call it the Einstein cost. So here we are, we're worried about, you know, uh, say your cousin or whatever. Um, not God, my poor cousins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're worried about your cousin not working yeah. And therefore, just like spending their money into the economy. Or sitting and, on Facebook all day long. 
Yeah. So that's like our, that's our kind of our worst case scenario is, oh my gosh, this person is doing that. And so the Einstein cost is that we can actually, we're preventing these massively productive people from changing our world. So just to think, what is the cost to society of preventing one Einstein from actually being Einstein? Oh, I love that. What is that cost? If we... if there's someone right now who's say like flipping burgers just to get by, they're working for poverty wages, they're working hundred hours a week, they're too busy to be like focused on this really important work. What is the cost of society of that? I think that's just, there. you can't put a price tag on that. And so I would much rather in, enable all these people to do what is just incredible work instead of worrying about the people not doing work. I'm just not concerned about that compared to the other thing. Oh my God, everyone. We're going to end with the Einstein effect. Well said, (laughs) Scott Santons. Thank you so much. Can you tell my audience where they can find you on the internet? Yes, you can find me at scottsantons.com and you can find me on Twitter or Facebook as Scott Santons. And also I recommend checking out basicincome.org, which is your international news site to figure out what's going on all over the world about basic income. And if you really want to dive in to researching basic income, check out reddit.com slash r slash basic income, which is the basic income subreddit. And that's stuff's posted every day about basic income and everything about it. So I hear it. I hear that's got a good moderator. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's what I've heard. Well, again, thank you, Scott. And thanks everybody for participating in today's conversation. We'll see you at the back end of this podcast. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hi, everybody. Lori Rudiman here. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Scott Santons on the topic of basic income. God, that guy is really cool and had a lot of interesting things to say, but I was fascinated about the power of saying no. Can you imagine if your basic needs were met and you could say no to stuff like no to team building, no to email, no to Slack, no to your crappy boss who's sexually harassing you? The power to say no is really interesting, but on the flip side, what's even more important is the power to say yes. Yes to creativity, yes to innovation, yes to spending more time with your kids, or poetry, or painting, or whatever the hell it is you like to do. You could start to say yes to more things in your life with a basic income. It's a pretty cool concept. I'm really excited about it. I don't know if we'll ever see it in our lifetimes, but I will tell you, I am sick of doing free work and being caught up in this economy where technology companies are benefiting from me clicking on things and liking things and sharing things, and I'm not making any money. So I'm a fan of basic income, and I hope you are too. And if you're curious, feel free to check out Scott Santons on the internet or any of the basic income resources that he suggested. And we'll see you next time on Let's Fix Work. If you're ready to make a real change in your workplace, start today by subscribing to this podcast and help us get the word out by leaving a review. 